Excel Pro. I have a weird experience where people meet me and they find out I'm a pan attorney. And the first thing they tell me is, patent troll. That's the only thing they've heard about patents. Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law, where we make your career goals achievable. I'm Neil Ungerleither. Today, we're going to talk about patent law and patent portfolios with Eli Mazur. Our guest is a partner at Harrity & Harrity LLP, who leads the firm's patent prosecution team and hosts Close 8 Podcasts. We spoke about building valuable patent portfolios for clients, the latest in patent law, and more. Excel Pro's interviews and products help to improve your day-to-day job performance and accelerate professional development. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinaccelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now, on to my conversation with Eli Mazur. Patent law is a hot topic right now, and recent tech innovations mean that patent lawyers be busy for quite some time to come. I'm here with Eli Mazur, a partner with Harrity and Harrity in Virginia, and the host of the Close 8 podcast. Eli, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Neil, for having me. I'm excited to do this. Me too. Can you give our listeners some background on Harrity and your role there? So our firm, we focus on helping large tech companies who file a lot of bad applications to get the best patents possible, but to do so in an efficient and a cost-effective manner. So we're very specialized in that way. Most of my work involves working with a patent office after we file the patent applications that we draft and convincing them to grant the best possible patents for our clients. So that's my day-to-day. Until recently, I've been leading our patent prosecution team, and that's really involved a lot of things. To do what you do in a cost-effective way, you have to have the best possible processes, use the best possible technology. So that's what my focus is, and that's really what our firm is about. Let's hone in on that a little bit. So building valuable patent portfolios for your clients from a high level, what are some of the strategies you use? Great question. There's three prongs to what we do. The main thing is interview. And by that, I mean conduct interviews with patent examiners at the U.S. Patent Office. So when you do patent prosecution, you do have the option of just getting the rejection from the patent office and just responding and writing and going back and forth and hoping that one day they'll side with you and get a patent. But that usually does not lead to a good result for lots of different reasons. One, you could be talking past each other. Two, you end up making arguments on the written record that can haunt your client if they ever try to enforce the patent. And three is you end up with a patent that likely has claims which are defined the legal rights that are probably worse than what you would ended up with if you had that conversation with the examiner. So the main thing to get those best results is conducting those interviews with examiners Some pen practitioners have an instinct of, let me just make an argument to an examiner like I would make one to a Supreme Court, and they will appreciate it. But that really ignores the reality of how examiners operate, how you get them to come to this agreement, and how do you work with them effectively. The great thing about interviews is 
you get a chance to discuss with them the arguments that you're thinking about making before making them. And they get a chance to tell you, well, I'll agree with that or not agree with that. So as you can imagine, you get a much better result and you get it much more efficiently. You won't waste the client's money making all these arguments that get you nowhere. And I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier about working with a patent office for the process of issuing patents. Attorneys who are earlier in their careers, what recommendations do you have for working with the patent office and what tips do you have for making the process easier? So talk to the examiner who's actually examining the patent application. That would be by far my main tip related to that is that there's statistics available about examiners. So you will be working with the examiner, let's say John Smith. You can look up statistics about that examiner. You can see how easy or how difficult they are, what's effective with them and what's not effective with them, and tailor your presentation during the interview and during the intersection based on that. So all of the data is available. It's just a matter of taking a look at that and using that. Shifting gears for a second, we now have a new Congress, and they've taken a little different approach in regards to patent issues. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Senator Coons from Delaware and Senator Tillis from North Carolina, they have restarted the Senate IP subcommittee about four years ago, and they were in those roles, and they were pushing uh, Section 101 legislation, among other priorities, to strengthen our patent system. Senator Leahy from Vermont did not like the direction they were going, and he said, I'll take over the top position from Senator Coons on the Democratic side. And these kind of bipartisan issues, Senator Tillis is really a guy who tries to figure out what he can get done with whoever they work with. So a lot of the focus in the last Congress was maybe undoing some of the positive changes where the USPTO has gone. So Senator Leahy has retired, and Senator Coons is back in that position with Senator Tillis. And they're publicly, again, pushing the Section 101 legislation, which will hopefully, the goal is to provide the clarity and consistency with what's panel eligible or not and make the patent system more reliable. That's the goal. The patent legislation is unlikely to get passed in this Congress for various reasons that we can discuss. They have a very powerful perch. What they say is listened to by senators on the Hill, by the USPTO. So the director of the USPTO is very responsive to what the senators who mostly care about these issues want. So it's great that they're working together. So that's on the Senate side. On the House side, you see a little bit of back to the future with Daryl Issa coming back in the chair role of the House committee, but he was a ranking member. So if you look back at his history, he's one of the main cheerleaders of the patent troll narrative. So he thinks there are too many patents. Those patents are being misused. That's his vantage point, And that's what he'll be focusing on. So it'll be interesting to see if he and the senators will find a way to work together on anything. As you might hear, I'm a bit skeptical, but I'm open to the possibilities. I was curious about the executive branch and the Biden administration. Have there been any major shifts in patent policy there? Good question. The Biden administration took a while to nominate a USB2 director. I think some of the reporting was talking about the reason for that is because there was disagreement between Senator Coons and Leahy on that. It wasn't really a priority for the administration. The main thing that they did before there was a new USPTO director from an IP standpoint was supporting the COVID-19 wave. And that was a big historical move, but basically said all the companies that invested billions of dollars into coming up with the innovation necessary for COVID-19 vaccines to happen, they're not going to have the same rights to their IP as they thought when they were making those investments. 
And I guess if you want to take a sympathetic view to why the administration did that is they thought it would support the waiver, but it wouldn't make any impact because you wouldn't need the COVID-19 innovation anymore and it wouldn't really change anything. So I think this is a sympathetic view of what they did. And they said at the same time, we can satisfy our base who thinks that the PAN system is an impediment to distributing the COVID-19 vaccines. But I think the risk to that is obviously people making similar investment decisions in the future. There are companies investing billions of dollars in climate change technology. The administration says it's their number one priority. It's one of the most important issues in the world. But what if one of these companies actually comes up with a solution and then wants to set a price for all of their investments? Or should they be worried that the administration is going to say, well, this is the most important issue, so we have to waive those IP rights related to climate change? I think that would be an overreaction. Even on the margins, it's a negative signal to the innovation ecosystem. The other thing is they haven't been involved in certain things. If you compare them, for example, the Biden administration to the Biden administration, the standard central patent policy, they didn't come up with a new policy which is favorable to implementers versus innovators like the Obama administration did. I don't think the big tech companies which had a lot of sway in the, during the Obama administration have the same kind of sway in the Biden administration when it comes to patent issues. But on the USPTO side, and you never want to overestimate the role that the USPTO plays in setting the administration's policies, but you do have a director that is interested in finding the right balance to promote innovation. She's a believer in the patent system. She's a believer in innovation, something she has in common with the previous administrations, and she's finding that balance while working within the administration. So a lot of people won't be happy the pace or the direction she goes on every issue, but I think... People who do believe in the patent system should take heart. And Eli, you mentioned earlier the debate between patent troll narrative. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So the patent troll narrative, I have a weird experience where people meet me and they find out I'm a patent attorney. And the first thing they tell me is, patent troll. That's the only thing they've heard about patents. So it's a powerful term, not only for those who closely follow the patent system, but on a cultural level. It came from the idea back when BlackBerry was facing a suit, and these companies were afraid of all these patent lawsuits, and they came up with this term of this patent troll. And the idea there is that you have these just people hiding their patents, they're just waiting, looking around who they can sue using their bad patents that they shouldn't have gotten in the first place. That really fueled a lot of the changes we've seen to weaken the patent system, including a series of Supreme Court decisions and the American Invents Act, which created the Patent Trials and Appeal Board, which made it much easier to invalidate patents that have been issued. So it's, it's a very powerful, powerful term. And you still hear about it. You still hear about it from policymakers. You still hear it from patent attorneys who work for particular clients. But really, I'm not sure how sincere it is from those who actually know how things work. But it is very effective to push policy in a certain direction. Efficient infringement is also, it's a term that was adopted by the other side as a response to that. And what efficient infringement means is that companies no longer care about what patents somebody else might have. They'll just do whatever they want because they know that it's actually much easier and efficient to infringe somebody's patents than it's to pay for somebody else's innovation that they invested in. So that was a response to that. And as you can see, the problem, if that attitude is there, is that who will want to pay for that innovation if there's efficient infringement, if it's so easy to infringe somebody else's patents and they have no way of enforcing them. So really, those are the two sides that you see. 
The efficient infringement does not have the same cultural cachet as you hear about patent trolls. But I think you are starting to hear stories about inventors who have been the victims of this efficient infringement. You do hear complaints from the USPTO saying, no, no, this is discouraging people from filing a patent applications and you know using the patent system. I think that's getting out. And if they think the stories like that are bad for inventors to hear, I guess they'll have to come up with policies to make sure there are less stories like that. And we're having this conversation in 2023. Over the past 10 years, what changes do you think there's been in the patent law landscape and in the practice of patent law? And the practice side, I think there's some interesting changes, and I hinted them in the beginning. You see attorneys trying to figure out how do I use technology to deliver even better results for clients than I did without it. So it's not just to make yourself more efficient for your clients so you can deliver the work in less time for less money, but it's also how you can do it better. Obviously, you hear a lot about chat GPT, but I think most of the things that you hear these days are more of automating tasks, something as plus proofreading, right? You have to make sure that your claims of your patent are as perfect as possible. And you would have to go word for word, make sure everything is perfect. You still want to do that. You still want to go word for word, but you want to backstep to check that. There are some parts of a patent application that are really important, but some of the parts of a patent application are just a lot of copying and pasting and rejiggering the words here and there. You don't want an attorney spending time doing those things. You want to do that. Part of it is responsible probably from pushing innovation is the fact that clients aren't willing to pay as much to obtain patents as they did in the past. They value the patents that they obtain differently. And just to be clear, it sounds like your recommendation is for any paperwork being made with any generative AI tool like ChatGPT, that should be proofread first. Is that in line with what you're thinking? Oh, so those are two separate things. I would not recommend anybody using ChatGPT to do any client work for confidentiality and other reasons. I'm saying you're hearing a lot about ChatGPT and AI, so technology like that might be used in the future. But what I'm talking about is does not require AI. It's really just automating tasks that an attorney was doing. So if an attorney was sitting there and copying and pasting in Word doc, or if he was proofreading his own documents, there is software available to make that easier. Understood. And shifting gears, what made you interested in patent law as a specialty? I went for undergrad for computer science, but I knew I wasn't the right person to sit there and do the coding and fix the bugs. I've always had an interest in law and I heard about patent law. It seemed like a good combination of being able to use my technical knowledge that I acquired and be able to work with all of these really smart people who are way smarter than me, who are working really hard to innovate and change the world. And I'm like, wow, I get a chance to be around the best of the best, helping them protect their innovations. And it seemed just like a great career. Everybody who I talked to, they were very happy they did it. So I decided to follow their path. And would you say there are any specific ways that your computer science background helps as a patent lawyer? Sure, yeah. The clients that I work with, a lot of them have inventions related to computer science. From networking to software development to databases to internet applications to security and so forth. So all of those things, obviously, I'm able to rely on that knowledge that I gain to be able to help them and be able to guide their innovation journey. That's a big part of what a good patent journey does is he doesn't just get like a form from an inventor and say, all right, I'll file in the patent office or I'll 
drafts a patent application based on it. A good patent attorney is really able to talk to inventors and help them invent in the right way, help them to communicate that to you, and then help them obtain the rights that they deserve based on that. And what would you say were the biggest surprises that you've had in your career? Good question. Some of these automation tools that I'm using, like I mentioned, that's probably a big surprise. I guess I'm not surprised, but I guess it's disappointing how some of the changes that need to take place with the patent system. As an example, patent eligibility that I mentioned before, they don't take place just because the people who need to make those challenges understandably have other priorities or they're hearing different things. And I think it's disappointing the inability to communicate that to those in Congress and administrations, to the Supreme Court in an effective manner, just watching that Sometimes it's painful. And in reality, they're working on way more important things. And the things that they do hear about the patent system might not be completely accurately. So it's, it's frustrating. And do you have any advice for patent lawyers who are just getting started on their professional journey? Two pieces of advice. One is don't just focus on your day-to-day work. And I think it's something that a lot of patent attorneys do because when you start on it, there's so much work, it's overwhelming. So it's like, follow what's happening in the patent world, what's happening in the patent system. It will make your work much more interesting and satisfying to know what role you play. Regardless if you're a patent litigation attorney, even a patent transactions attorney or a patent prosecution attorney like me, if you figure out how does the whole patent system work together, it will make your piece of it much more interesting, satisfying. And much more importantly, you'll be able to deliver the best possible work to your clients, knowing where your work fits in and what is the value that you bring to that. And second is, don't be afraid of it. It's funny that patent attorneys work with innovators. That's their job. But I've met a lot who are very resistant to changing things, thinking things about differently. Things change, and it's better to figure out how you can embrace that change and become the best attorney possible based on that. We were just here with Eli Mazur, who was speaking about innovations in patent law and his own professional story. Eli, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Good to talk to you. For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J O I N A C C E L P R O.com. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day-to-day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-A-C-C-E-L. Excel Pro IP Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kolkarni, Caitlin Cole, Jared Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Matt Crossman, and me, Neil Ungleither. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.